Good afternoon. Our scripture reading this afternoon is from Luke 7. The passages can be found on page 10 of the bulletin and will also be projected above. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The word of the Lord. No, there we are. Okay, good. Uh, mention your Trinity Kids Bolton. Uh, three things uh, that I want you to listen for that I'm going to mention specifically. So one is Marley. Uh, the second is I-, I want you to be able to, maybe if like your parents were to ask you this, what is Jesus' most common emotion? Be able to answer that question. And finally, uh, something about no more funerals. So Marley, Jesus' most uh, common emotion, and then no more funerals. With that, let me pray for us. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight. Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that it is absolutely true. We thank you, Lord, that you've given it to us because you love us and you desire to shape us and mold us and form us uh, into those who know you and look more and more like your son. And so we pray that you would do that today, that we would know his grace, his love, and his beauty. We pray this all in his name. Amen. I know it is, uh, it's Easter season. I'm going to dip into a Christmas movie in April. Times are tough, okay? All right. Uh, specifically, uh, Home Alone, okay? So uh, I want you to think about uh, one of the less popular characters uh, who arguably ends up being uh, the most important in the entire movie. And that is old man Marley, okay? So he is the older guy who, uh, at the beginning of the movie, is always out salting the sidewalks. You know, he's got the big uh, bin of salt and the the shovel. And he looks really scary. And so Buzz, Kevin's older brother, mentions that the rumor is is that he he had taken the lives of his entire family, but that he never got arrested because there was never enough evidence. And so every time they show him this tense, and scary music begins to play. And so it's like that when they're, they're first looking out the window at him. It's like that later when uh, Kevin's trying to, uh, to buy a toothbrush at the local drugstore. He runs into him there too. But then Kevin runs into him at church on Christmas Eve. And what Kevin finds out is that he was totally wrong about him. That he's actually this grandfather who's there to see his granddaughter perform. And he's had this falling out with his son. He's this man who is soft and tender and loving. And as you might remember, he's the one, the spoiler alert, he's the one who saves Kevin's life at the end, very end of the movie. So here's the point. Kevin's view of him was totally wrong. And, and that mistaken view of him determined the way that he interacted with him all the way up to that point. And I, I mentioned that 
Because that same thing is true when it comes to our view of Jesus. And so here's what I mean. Your view of Jesus is going to shape the way that you relate to him. It's gonna shape the way that, that you think he responds to your sin and failure. It's gonna shape the way that, that you believe he responds to, to the hardest, most devastating things in your life. And, and here's the deal. Uh, this is actually true even if you are here today and would not call yourself a Christian. Because your, your view of Jesus is actually gonna determine whether you engage with him at all. And it's a whole lot easier to reject a caricature of him than, than the true Jesus of the Bible. So there's a, uh, there's a New Testament scholar named N.T. Wright, and he served for a while as a chaplain at a British university, and part of the responsibility in that role is that he would meet with every individual uh, undergraduate student as they came in. It was part of the, the way, what was required. And so he, he says that he'd run into a lot of them who would, who would say, yeah, you're probably not gonna be seeing much of me. I don't actually believe in God. And so that happened so frequently that he developed a standard response and he would go, oh, okay, that, that's interesting. Tell me some about this God that you don't believe in. So he would hear them out and inevitably he'd end up saying something like, oh, that, that's great because I don't believe in that God either. And so the point was that the, the true God of the Bible is different than we expect. And I think over the last few years, one of the things that, that I've been struck with personally is how much of life with Jesus is really having your inaccurate, false views of him broken down and then actually reshaped by what the scripture says about him. And so one of the things that, that we say and that we pray for often here at Trinity is that Jesus would become more beautiful and believable to us. And that that would happen as we see him for who he really is. And what you get in this passage in Luke 7 is a passage that does exactly that. And what it does specifically is, is it pushes back on what I think are two pretty common, uh, deep-seated falsehoods that we believe about Jesus. One is that we believe that he doesn't really care. And the other is that we might believe that, that he cares, but, but that he doesn't really have any power to do anything about what's really going on in my life. And here's the thing about that. Probably nobody in here would say, that's what I believe about Jesus. But it is the case that that's the, the, those are the things that you might functionally believe about him. And so what I wanna do is uh, frame our time with, with something that the crowd says at the end of this passage. So in verse 16, the crowd says, God has visited his people. And that's an echo of, of Zechariah's song in, in uh, Luke chapter one, where it says, blessed be the, the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. So that's their response to what Jesus does in this passage. Here's what I want us to see today. It's that the God of the Bible has visited you with compassion and power. He's visited you with compassion and power. So two points, here's the first. Jesus has compassion for you in your sorrow. He has real compassion for you in your sorrow. So let me set the scene. Jesus is coming into this small town called Nain. So at this point, he has a huge crowd following him. So his ministry is well known enough that there are people who have heard his teaching, and some of them have seen him perform these miracles such that now there's this huge crowd that's following him wherever he goes. And they approach the, the gate of this town which was the, the, uh, the main gathering place in the town. This is the place where, where significant business took place. And so there are even more people 
that are at the, the gate of the town. And as he approaches Nain, there's a funeral that's taking place. And the, the way they did funerals in this day is, is, was much different than how we do them now. So one of the things that's different is that our funerals are often these really quiet occasions in a church. Whereas the, the, the way that grief was expressed and the way funerals were done in the ancient world is that they were much larger and they were much louder. Most of the town would turn out for an event like this. And so that, that's actually one place, I think, where, where you see something like this today, and it, it's in the pr procession of cars that you see from a church to a graveside. So um, in, in late February, I was in, in Tyler to be a part of my uh, friend Ben's wife's funeral. And so all the guys in our pastor's group were a part of either the, the funeral or the graveside. And so it was a huge funeral, like 600 people attended. And uh, so we all go get in our cars after the, the ceremony and are driving to the graveside and it's this massive line of cars. And so we're up towards the front. Part of what happened is that people began pulling over on either side of the road. And you see that around here some too. What I had never seen before though is that people started getting out of their cars and some of them would put a hand over their heart. There was all this construction that was going on in the section too, and there were these, these workers who were out, and they stopped their work, they turned around, they took off their hard hats, and put it over their heart as this procession went by. And it was this beautiful picture of a, a community that is sharing in the grief of the loss of one of their own. And that's the kind of picture that you need to have in mind as to what's happening in Nain at this point. That's what's happening in this community. So you'd have this huge procession when the entire town is turned out and that the family member would either be right in the front of the body or right behind it. And one other important thing to note about this though, most of the funerals that we do now are, are usually four or five days, maybe even a week after the person has passed. That wasn't the case in this world. These funerals happened uh, much, much sooner, sometimes even the same day. And here's why that matters. It matters because this grief was fresh. This is at a place where you are still so raw and you're still experiencing that, that confusion and that the gut-wrenching feeling of having lost this loved one. But what Luke says is that while every death, every death is awful and tragic, he says something about this one that is even more so. Because what he says in verse 12 is that this man that they're carrying out was the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And so here's this woman's situation. She's already lost her husband, which is totally heartbreaking in and of itself. But what that did as well is that it put her in this place of insecurity and vulnerability within society. Because there was no social security. There was no life insurance. There was no sort of network that was going to provide for her, no way for her to provide for herself. But she did have a son. And this son obviously lost his father and is with his mother in their grief. But the other thing that he could do is that he would have been able to provide for them. What has happened in this woman's life is that now that son has died. And so on top of the absolutely devastating sorrow of having lost her husband and then her only child, she now is in a place where she has no hope for what the future of her life is going to look like. That's her situation. She is totally helpless and completely hopeless. 
And it's right into that place that Jesus enters. And so what Luke says is that as Jesus approaches, he does two really important things. Here's the first. The first thing that he does is he sees her. And I want you to think about this for for a minute. This woman had no one. There was no one who could provide for her, no one to help her, nobody to care for her in her grief. She's in this place where, where, where she is practically invisible to this community after this ceremony is done. And that is where Jesus sees her. And this is something that that you see God doing throughout the Bible. So one example of this is in the Old Testament where Hagar is put out of Sarah's house. She's she's isolated, she's she's exiled. And, and, And so what God does is come to her and it says that he sees her. And then later on in Genesis 16, the way she says, she describes, to, speaks to God is to say, you are a God who sees. This is also what the, the father in the parable of the prodigal son does. When his wayward son returns, it says that, and when he was far off, he saw him. And he had compassion on him. This is what Jesus does when he sees these crowds. He says that he sees them and they were like sheep without a shepherd and he has compassion on him. That's what he's doing for this woman. He, he sees this poor woman and he sees people in their suffering and their hardship. In all the places where you feel so unseen, that is the place where he sees you. This is one of the most beautiful things about the Jesus of the Bible. That he is one who sees you in your sorrow. He sees you in those moments where you think nobody at all does. Nobody understands the grief that you're experiencing. Jesus sees you in that place. Luke says he sees her, and then secondly, says that he had compassion on her. And this word for compassion is a really important word. Uh, What this doesn't mean is that Jesus just acted in compassion. Nor does it mean that, that, that he felt some feelings of sympathy, although both, both of those things are true. This is actually a word that, that really is talking about your, your insides. It's talking about something that you feel in your gut, in your, in your deepest, innermost part of who you are. It's something that, that, that moves you with, with anguish for a person. And so what Jesus does is he looks at this woman, he sees her helpless situation, and he's moved by it. There's a, uh, there's a theologian named B.B. Uh, Warfield. He wrote this really interesting essay on the emotional life of Christ. And what he says in that essay is that the emotion in the New Testament that is most frequently attributed to Jesus is that of compassion. If that's the emotion that he felt most, that's his most frequent emotion. Where there is something that, that, that is deep within the heart of Jesus that moves towards hurting, broken, sinful people. That that's who he really is. And so here's how Dane Ortland puts it. This is a quote in, the, in your bulletin. He says this, the cumulative testimony of the four gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. And so here's the question. Is that your view of Jesus? Is that who you know him to be in your own life? And if not, why not? Maybe it could be something that you view him as sort of this perpetually disappointed, purse-lipped parent. 
who's really just waiting for you to mess up because he knows that's what's going to happen. Um, Andrew Peterson is a, a singer-songwriter that we, we've seen a number of his songs. Um, he says that that's the view of God that he had. He said he, he described his view of God as, as, a, uh, as a police officer who's tailing him without the lights on. But he knew that the second that he messed up, those lights were going to get flipped on and he was going to get pulled over. That could be your view of who Jesus is. It could also be, though, that, that maybe for you, Jesus just feels distant. You, you, you recognize this to, to be what, what the Bible says about him, but he seems so uninvolved in your everyday life that there's just this disconnect there. And so here's the thing. If that's what you think, if that's what you feel, I want you to hear this. That is not who the Jesus of the Bible really is. Jesus is one who sees you in your sorrow. He's one who has compassion on you in the hardest, most difficult places in your life right now. And that's what he does for this woman. I want you to look, though, at what he says after seeing her. He says something that would be absolutely terrible if you or I said this to her. So he says in verse 13, do not weep. Now, if you saw somebody say this to a widow who had just lost her only son, you would say something like, are you kidding me? That's really what you're going to say to this woman right now? Weeping is exactly what she should be doing with all that's happened to her. Here's the thing about this, though. The reason that Jesus can say this is because of what he's about to do. And so secondly, what we see is that the Jesus of the Bible is the Jesus who has the power to reverse the curse of sin and death. He has the power to reverse the curse. And so after saying, do not weep, he does two things. First, it says that he touches the beer. And so a, a beer is, is, is not a coffin, as we think about it. It was really just this large plank of wood. And so they would lay the person's body on this uh, plank of wood, and then the bearers would take it outside the city where it would find the final place of burial. What Luke says, though, is that Jesus comes up to this funeral procession, and he touches the beer. And here's what's significant about that. One is that he didn't have to do this. If you notice, the way that he raises this man from the dead is to speak him into life. He doesn't need to touch him. And here's why this is a, an even bigger deal. To, to touch the beer would have immediately made somebody unclean. So nobody would have touched a dead body like that. And so uh, that, that's why what you read here is that as the bearers see him do it, it says they stood still. Why would he do that? He does that to show that within himself, he has the power over sin itself. That, that, that what he has in the face of this impurity and curse of sin of death is the power to bring purity and cleansing. And so what happens here to Jesus is that rather than being defiled, what he does is he overcomes this power of sin and death. And that's exactly what he does in this most vivid way when secondly then, he speaks the man back to life. And so you, if you've been with us the last two weeks, you, you probably recognize that there are a whole lot of parallels here to those stories of resurrection uh, with Elijah in 1 first, in first Kings 17 and then Elisha in 2 Kings 4. And so we've looked at those the last two weeks. Here are some of the parallels. He's raising a son of a distraught mother. Both of those prophets did that. He says he gives him back to his mother. 
That's the exact language used of what Elijah did. And then Nain, this, this town where they are, is only a half mile from Shunem, which is the, the, the place where Elisha had raised the woman's son. What I want you to see, though, is the difference. Elijah and Elisha have to call out to God. They call out to God to raise this child, and then both of them have to touch this deceased child. They have to lay on the deceased child. All Jesus does here is speak. He doesn't have to pray to the Lord for this because he himself is the Lord. That he possesses that kind of power within himself so that his words alone call this man out of death and back into life. And immediately, Luke says, he sits up and he begins to speak. Here's what one commentator says about this. The first face that the boy sees on awakening from death is the face of Jesus. A face with which he's unfamiliar, but to which he belongs. So I want you to think for a minute here about what's just happened for this widow. What had been the worst day of her life, maybe second only to the day when she had lost her husband, has now become this day of unimaginable joy. And it has everything to do from this man, whom she didn't know before, who showed her this staggering compassion, who saw her in that place and then brought life into her story that had been so full of death. And her life from that point on was completely changed because she had met Jesus. And then notice uh, what, what Luke mentions about the crowd at the end. So in verse 16, Luke says this. He says, fear seized them all. Now why? Because what they've just witnessed is something that no ordinary teacher could ever do. That there is only one who could do something like this. And that that's actually God himself. And so then they immediately begin, begin glorifying God because some degree, to some degree what they know is that a true and greater prophet has come among them. That this is a prophet that, that, that is greater than Moses, but that Moses talked about. A prophet far greater than Elijah, a prophet far greater than Elisha. But this prophet has power over death itself. And so here's the question for you. Is this how you view Jesus? Is this who you know him to be in your own life? One who, who could show you limitless compassion. Compassion in the face of, of what is the deepest sorrow that you could ever experience. And at the very same time, one who can overcome even death itself. Or is it possible that you're still keeping him at arm's length? Because maybe it is that, that, that you just don't see him for who he really is. But here's what's tough though. It may be that you say, no, I do see that this is exactly the way the Bible portrays him. That he is a God of immense compassion and he is one who has this power over, even, over death itself. But the problem is that you've got a really hard time believing that. And, and, and it's understandable because you think this, it's great that this widow has received her son back from the dead. That hasn't happened for me. That's not what Jesus has done for me. So here's the thing that, that we've got to remember as we read this account. This woman's sorrow was taken away on this day, no doubt. But this was not the last time that she felt the grief and the sorrow of death. 
She still mourned her husband. She was still without her husband. And, and while we don't know the, the, the end of, of her story here, we do know that both this woman and her son eventually died. This was not the last funeral that she attended. And I, um, in the last three months, I've officiated three funerals, attended one. And I know many of you have, have, have been even in similar situations like that. And I, I, we're about to have another funeral in the next two weeks here for Nathan Hoff's dad, who just died unexpectedly yesterday. And I know what you feel and what I feel is this longing for funerals to stop. I don't want to go to any more funerals. I don't want to officiate any more funerals. And while Jesus stopped this funeral, what we really want him to do is to stop all funerals. Here's the beautiful thing about what the Bible says. Easter is the guarantee that that one day will happen. There is a day when Jesus will stop all funerals once and for all. How can we say that? We can say that because Jesus experienced his own funeral, if we could put it that way. And what is his greatest act of compassion? He gave himself over to death for his sinful, sorrowful people. Here's the thing. In a sense, he actually stopped that funeral too. So you remember on that Easter morning, the women come to the tomb and they're bringing burial spices because they're going to complete the funeral that wasn't yet done. But when they show up at that tomb on that Easter morning, the tomb is empty. Because Jesus had conquered death itself. And it's his resurrection that's the guarantee that one day when he returns, he's going to fully and finally undo the curse of sin and death in this world. And what I want you to see is that that is who the real Jesus is. This one who has infinite compassion for you in your sorrow and one who will one day wipe away every tear from your eye. Because death on that day will be no more. Neither will there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. That is the real Jesus. That is the Jesus who offers himself to you, who invites you to come to him in all of your sorrow, in all of your sin, in all of your heartache, and to find rest, to receive his love and his compassion. That's the invitation. Flee to him, run to him, throw yourself at his feet. He longs to embrace you. And pray for us. Father, we thank you that though the wrong feels off so strong in our world, you are the ruler yet. And that you are one who has sent your son Jesus, who has had such great compassion, who continues to have such great compassion on us. And one who has himself defeated death and will one day put it away fully and finally. And so, Father, we long for that day and we pray as John does that, Lord Jesus, you would come quickly. And we pray this all in your name and for your glory. Amen.